0: This week on Behind the Lens, for years and under two separate mayoral administrations, New Orleans officials have repeatedly responded to questions about the use of facial recognition technology by saying that the city didn't own any software itself. But it turns out it's been using the technology, though it's owned by other agencies. A discrimination suit has been filed against two private schools that would typically be immune from such actions, but a lawyer says that because they received federal pandemic aid, that is no longer the case. And two years after Louisiana residents voted to end non unanimous jury verdicts, and six months after the U.S. Supreme Court found them unconstitutional, more than 1,500 people convicted by non unanimous juries remain locked up in the state's prisons. 80% of them are black. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Good morning. Education reporter Marta Jusin's here. Hi, Carolyn. Criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel's with us. Hey, Nick. Hi, Carolyn. And the Lens editor Charles Maldonado is here as well. Good morning, Charles. Good morning. Michael, we're starting with you. After years of denying it, New Orleans PD admits they're using facial recognition software. It's just not software that they own. So they've been getting around this for years by playing with language, I guess. Give us some background on how facial recognition software is used and why it's controversial.
1: Sure. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I think most people are familiar with the general concept of, of facial recognition, um, but more or less, it, mostly what it is, it's, um, it's software um, that that law enforcement agencies will use. Um, basically, if you have a um, surveillance, you know, footage of someone robbing a store, find a screenshot in which you can see, you know, that person's face, there's plenty of program software um, out there that you can buy commercially, um, that you can then run that image through. And, and try and match that up with, with known faces, right? And that may take the form of mugshots, shots. Um, some of the private ones include Facebook photos. And, and so that technology has been expanding and, it, and it's been controversial for a few reasons. Um, but I think one of the central points is that facial recognition software tends to be more inaccurate when it comes to identifying black people or people of color. There was a study that came out um uh, a, a couple years ago, I found that actually Native Americans had the highest inaccuracy rates. And there have been some incidents. There was a high-profile incident in Detroit earlier this year where a man was incorrectly identified through one of these pieces of software, um, was arrested on his front lawn in front of his wife and two young children, um, was held in custody for 30 hours, and, and everything that goes along with, with being dragged to jail. and And so that's been pointed to as an example of when this kind of software can, can go wrong.
0: So how is NOPD using it?
1: So we don't, we don't know exactly. So I mean, the, the background here is that, you know, we've been told for years that the city is not utilizing facial recognition software. Now, what they meant by that is that they didn't actually own uh, any software, any facial recognition software that they were using. Now, the, the trick is what they have been doing is that they've been sending images of suspects, out to, quote, state and federal partners, unquote, um, to use in their facial recognition software. So we know one of these partners is the FBI. Um, The FBI has a pretty well-known facial recognition program, and it seems like the way it works is, again, that they'll send an image to the FBI, the FBI will run it through their system and then send back, you know, whatever their um, program spits out as results.
0: So let me just get this straight. Is this just uh, an artful dodge almost that the questions haven't been asked in the exact specific manner in which the NLPD would have had to say yes?
2: Yeah, well, if I I could kind of address that for a second. So a lot of the conversation in the past about this has revolved around the, the city's network of crime cameras, which are all fed into the surveillance hub called the real-time crime center so that's usually when this come up has come up a few years ago or a year or two ago Michael reported a story about the software that these cameras are using and it is a type of software that could utilize facial recognition uh, but the real-time crime center has a policy against using facial recognition so the city does not or at least as far as we know, is not using uh, facial recognition software through those crime cameras. So since the questioning about facial recognition from council members and the public has largely revolved around, do you have facial recognition in these crime cameras? They've said, no, we don't. Also, about a year ago, another publication reported that the the NOPD had um, kind of sent out photos uh, to to. Partners around the state of a, of a suspect in a crime in, in a sort of normal way that what police will do, you know, is this just to, to see if anybody else had anybody who looked like that in their files. Uh, apparently, unbeknownst to the NOPD, um, one of these one of these partners, or law enforcement partners, had uh, applied facial recognition to it. This latest story from Michael is is basically an admission that. The NOPD is actively seeking out these other agencies to apply facial recognition with full knowledge of the NOPD. Hmm. Right, and,
1: and so yeah, to build off of what Charles was saying, yeah. So, so like he was saying, it's 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 the the real time crime center is what has this policy against facial recognition, and and the city has often you know uh, focused on that policy in response to questions about facial recognition. I wanted to quickly point out um, that the name of the policy document that bans facial recognition. The title of it is the Citywide Public Safety Surveillance System Policy. Um, so when I read that the first time, you know, I had figured that that had, you know, applied more broadly to the city. However, I don't think it technically does. Um, now, to get back to your question about has this question been asked in, in clear, uncertain terms, I would point to a, a city council hearing from June. Um, so the city council has been working on this ordinance um, a surveillance regulatory ordinance um, and it's gone through a, a couple different iterations and phases it's been watered down a bit but one thing that stayed consistent is that the ordinance had a facial recognition recognition ban in it And so in June, they held a a hearing on the ordinance. They um, invited the city's chief technology officer, um, as well as the um, director of the Real-Time Crime Center to answer questions about how the city uses this technology. And something that was asked repeatedly is, does the city use this technology? Are we employing facial recognition? And over and over responses were given that indicated no. And we can have the discussion about whether the responses were technically accurate or not. Um, But I think at the end of the day, what's important to note is that the city council members left that meeting with an understanding that the city is not using facial recognition. Um, So the impression that was given to, again, elected public officials was that we were not using this. It turns out um, that we are in a different capacity.
0: Okay. so what's the response now?
1: The NOPD um, hasn't told us much past, you know, what what we've included in the story, which is that they use it. Um, They said that, you know, previous denials were referring to ownership of the software. You know, on the city council side, you know, this definitely seems to throw a wrench in the surveillance ordinance plans because it had a facial recognition ban on the understanding that that wouldn't interfere with any current operations at the NOPD. So now at, at the city council, at least, They're kind of going back to the drawing board and figuring out what um, they can do. You know, I've talked to, I I think most of the reaction that I've been able to get has been from um, Ion Surveillance, which is a local, you know, advocacy group, a local watchdog surveillance group. And I think the frustration there is that the conversation about surveillance in New Orleans was moving past facial recognition in a way. It's almost as if that issue was settled and then we were moving the conversation on to other things, right? So there's facial recognition, but there's also characteristic tracking software. So there's software out there that claims to be able to identify people based off their gait, based off the way they walk, right? So we were starting to get into some more nuanced conversation about technology regulation. And now I think the frustrations that were being brought back to something that, you know, people thought it had been settled for years.
0: So the questions just need to be reframed in order to further the conversation.
1: Yeah, and and, and we have to have a conversation about, you know, whether the NOPD's use of facial recognition as it is right now is an acceptable thing to the public and to our public officials.
0: Right. Okay.
3: If I can chime in, I'm not the expert here, but I think both as a citizen and as a reporter, you you really start to erode trust when you, these questions are based on semantics, you know, pivot to the education world, and we found out that they had installed, you know, water filters to remove lead at, um, drinking fountains, you know, for children, but installed didn't mean that they had hooked them up and that they were in use. So, I, yeah. I really think like reporters shouldn't have to fight through semantics. It's definitely our job to investigate and to dig into things, but we shouldn't have to fight through semantics like this. And especially in the case of facial recognition.
4: Yeah, I mean, and also in the, in the context of NOPD, I, the same day Michael published the story, I was watching their, the NOPD's budget hearing at the council, and there was a long discussion about you know, how can we improve the perception of the department um, in the eyes of the citizens. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion about community outreach and uh, the the police chief said that we need to change the inherent biases of of people and how they see the police. But there was no discussion of uh, the department's use or denial of, of
0: using facial recognition software. So that was interesting, yeah. Yeah, when a big
2: part of the conversation specifically at that budget meeting was, uh, was about how to increase public trust in the police department, it doesn't look great when they have been only answering this, this question that the public has wanted to know about by using you know a very literal interpretation of the question as asked rather, right. rather than ask, answering the question in the spirit in which it was asked.
1: Yeah, and I'll, I guess I'll add one more thing, um, which is that we've had problems with openness and transparency with surveillance in this city since the city has started investing in surveillance in the first place. The, the original reason why this surveillance ordinance was brought up in the first place was that it was supposed to create a, a comprehensive reporting mechanism for surveillance technology in the city. And their argument at the time, um, Ion Surveillance, who helped write the ordinance, Was that this stuff is really hard to track. There's no, you know, the city doesn't have, you know, a page on its website that just lists all its surveillance capabilities. I mean, this stuff is not generally, is not always presented to the public with with complete openness. And I think that a lot of city council members um, saw that proposal and and maybe thought that it was a little bit over the top and that it would, you know, cause a, a pretty big burden to the city if it had to, you know, do this comprehensive reporting on surveillance. However, at the same time, during the same meeting, um, they were being told something, they were being given the impression that we weren't using facial recognition when we actually were. So even within that meeting, if you just look at that one meeting, I think it's a, 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 an interesting case study uh, for what it's like trying to get, you know, clarity um, about
2: the city surveillance system.
0: Right. Thanks. Thank you. It's a great story. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are Michael Isaac-Stein, Marta Jusin, Nick Krestel, and Lens Editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Karen Gadwa, the co-founder and executive director of The Lens. The Lens aims to engage and empower the residents of New Orleans and the Gulf Coast. We provide the information and analysis necessary to advocate for more accountable and just governance. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. Marta, a lawyer has filed a discrimination suit against two local private schools typically these schools both would be immune from such actions under federal exemptions granted to religious organizations however the attorney says that because they both took ppp money they're no longer exempt what's going on here
3: yeah so i i thought this was a a really interesting case um a young girl 13 year old with cerebral palsy has applied to private schools uh, for high school and she had two incidents with two schools, one that kind of outright essentially denied her and said that both A, suggested that she would do better at a different school, and B, that they didn't really have the capacity for her, and that was at Mount Carmel, and then at Cabrini High School, um, they've essentially, her lawyer said, had, you know, denied her for all intents and purposes because they are not open to her having a personal aid at the school, and she needs one for uh just you know everyday tasks and uh, also for help in the restroom
0: so how does the paycheck paycheck protection program money play into this
3: so how this plays in is if you accepted that money which is run through the small business administration uh, program federal government that means that you must comply with certain anti-discrimination laws and normally religious organizations have an exemption um, from from disability in that category of, you know, anti-discrimination, uh, but in this case, they do not because they've accepted this federal money.
0: How many schools locally have taken PPP?
3: There are roughly, uh, I think, most of the local charter schools took PPP money, and then on the private side, we think um, about seventy-five took money from this federal program in the first and second congressional districts so, of, you know, Greater New Orleans area. So this could open up anti-discrimination suits in a lot of other places, I think.
0: Right. Tell us about the the um, the reasoning that the schools gave to this family, why they were being denied admission.
3: Sure. So the, the first one, I think the attorney would say, like, this is surface level kind of ridiculous excuse. I, I think he would probably categorize it like that. The mother called this. Mount Carmel to see if her daughter could have a friend attended an open house with her because she needed an assistant to come with her to, you know, visit the school. The school said she could have this uh, person come with her, but then a administrator called her back and left this voicemail that, you know, really, I think, shocked her and basically said to the effect both um, you know, your daughter's probably not going to be able to get around the school. It's not like when you and I were there because the the current president of Mount Carmel was the principal when the mother attended. And she also said, you know, I think this program's going to be too academically challenging for your daughter. Um, and she said that without knowing anything about you know the daughter's um, you know IQ mental capacity and cerebral palsy does not affect that in a person or not necessarily so. The attorney Chris Edmonds has said this is just you know blatant, blatant discrimination because the school doesn't know anything about her academic capacity.
0: She saved that voicemail, I suppose.
3: She did, and um, that that is part of the lawsuit.
0: This has happened really fast.
3: It has happened really fast. Um, but you know she's she's trying to get into schools for next year, um, and that's another thing that they attempt that uh, Mr. Edmonds wanted a point he wanted to make was that they didn't have this problem at any other schools. It was just these two that stood out that were not willing to accommodate her either for admissions process or, you know, apparently for actual admission. So he found that very troubling as did the mother. Now they're seeking uh, solutions.
0: What are the schools saying if they are saying anything yet?
3: The schools have not responded to requests for comment.
0: Has there been any historical precedent for cases like this? Locally.
3: Yeah. So I talked to another civil rights attorney, um, Garrett DeRuce, and he said that, you know, well, this is a new argument or a new way to kind of, you know, tap into the way that federal anti-discrimination laws can apply to a private organization. The method is not new. You think about a private hospital, private religious hospital that accepts Medicaid or Medicare. They're also subject to these anti-discrimination laws. So this isn't necessarily a new um, way of going about this, but it, it is new, and that the PPP program is new. So
0: it begs the question that uh, when they were lining up these schools to claim this money, I you know I wonder if they read the fine print. Like, okay, this isn't just free money; it comes with some strings attached, and you need yeah. To...
3: I, I think that's the really big question here: is did did these private institutions understand what they were agreeing to? Um, Mr. Edmonds said the same thing. You know, did they did they read the fine print? Did they talk to their lawyer?
0: Right. And not knowing much about how this process works, as far as these kinds of suits, is the plaintiff asking for damages? What are what are they asking for?
3: She's asking both for damages and then to be considered for admission and and what she is owed under the um, Rehabilitation Act, which is accommodations like the aid that she wants to bring into the
0: school. In a scenario like that, if that school has now taken PPP money, so they're now subject to guidelines, federal guidelines read anti-discrimination laws, does that mean the school themselves have to supply the aid, the person, the the, the aid to help the Not
3: necessarily. So they have to allow for accommodations. In this case, the family is, um, is offering to provide the aid themselves. So that would take the financial burden off the school. However, if the school administrators, you know, said, well, we don't want a stranger on campus, even though the family has had the aid background, go through background checks in previous years, then the school could say, okay, we're going to talk through the accommodation you've requested and, you know, maybe we'll meet you in the middle and we'll provide a school staffer to to help your daughter. Okay. Um, but they are required to go through a process where they talk through the accommodation request. And um, the school doesn't have to provide it if it's unreasonable. But in this case, if the family's providing the aid, that, you know, seems fairly reasonable.
0: Okay. Final question. This is really weedy, but how long do they have to abide by the new guidelines, the federal guidelines that they had been exempt for previously. You know, they took the money, they filed for the money under the pandemic. Do they then get to go back to their old practices?
3: That's correct. Once they pay back the loan, they're no longer subject to the Rehabilitation Act.
0: So it would require them to pay back in full the PPP money, which could take years. once
2: the loan term is over because it's a forgivable loan.
0: Uh Aha, okay.
2: Yeah, when
3: they're, when they're no longer under the terms of the loan.
0: Marta, it's a great story, thank you. Thank you. Nick, a civil rights group released a report this week on non-unanimous jury verdict cases in the state. It found that 80% of prisoners still inside the prisons on non-unanimous verdicts are black compared to 67% of the overall state prison population. This adds support to previous findings, including in the advocate that black defendants were more likely to be convicted by non-unanimous juries. Though non-unanimous jury verdicts are now illegal and have been since last year, there are still many people in prison whose 10 to 2 or 11 to 1 guilty verdicts are considered valid for now. What does the report say?
4: So as you mentioned, the report sort of uh, analyzes these 1,500 cases of, of people who are still in prison uh, who had non-unanimous verdicts. Um, as you mentioned, 80% of those people are black. Um, the report found about 40% of them are over the age of 50. But really what what this report is doing um, is attempting to highlight just kind of the, the scope of the problem one, and then also, as you said, the sort of the racial disparities in the way that non-unanimous verdicts uh, played out over the decades. Um, And this is in in sort of preparation for a Supreme Court hearing that's going to decide whether or not a ruling that found non-unanimous juries unconstitutional should apply to these 1,500 people and whether or not they should get new trials.
2: I'll just put in a little background here. So, you know, for many, many years... Louisiana allowed non-unanimous verdicts, uh, you know, verdicts of uh, where at least 10 of 12 jurors were voting one way were considered, uh, were considered valid verdicts. After a, a, a Pulitzer Prize winning series by The Advocate, the legislature uh, moved to bring a constitutional amendment to the voters to repeal the non-unanimous jury verdict law and call for only unanimous jury verdicts. That was in late 2018. So the thing about the constitutional amendment was that it had zero retroactivity. It only applied to cases that were initiated, in other words, crimes that were committed after January 1st, 2019. So there were all these people who were still in prison, who had been convicted on non-unanimous jury verdicts before that, who weren't affected by the constitutional amendment. Then uh, a case uh, went before the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, arguing that this, uh, that non-unanimous jury verdicts should be declared un- unconstitutional under the U.S. Constitution, and that should be applied retroactively. What the court found, so the court did find earlier this year that, the, um, that ju- non-unanimous jury verdicts were unconstitutional, but they limited the scope of that finding and applied it only to cases where uh, uh, someone who is convicted on non-unanimous jury verdict is still in the appeals process. So that's another category that expands beyond the state constitutional amendment, but it doesn't expand it into complete retroactivity. And that question is going to go before the, the Supreme Court now.
0: Okay. How did this law get on the books in the first place in this state? where you could have such a thing as a non-unanimous verdict?
4: Yeah, so the law was passed during a uh, 1898 Constitutional Convention. And you know this is, this is one of the, the things that people point to when they um, talk about the law's racist origins. That, Consti- that Constitutional Convention was, was specifically set up to, I believe, reestablish the, the supremacy of the white race, according to one of the participants. So what uh, advocates and, and legal scholars have argued is that this non unanimous jury law was sort of one of many pillars that that the state was using to push back on civil rights legislation that had passed uh, during Reconstruction uh, after the Civil War to uh, extend rights to to free black people, and that that's. The sort of interpretation that the Supreme Court agreed on when they they ruled originally um, on non unanimous juries um, in in the first place is that this this law was designed to basically nullify the votes of African-American members of the jury
0: pool. It was frequently happening that a jury of 12, maybe nine or so were white and three were black and the Majority of the black votes on the jury were voting to acquit.
4: Yeah, precisely. I mean, I think that that prior to sort of more robust civil rights legislation, uh, black people were being excluded from juries altogether, um, mm-hmm. and that would allow for for easy convictions of, of black defendants. and And this was sort of a way to get around the uh, desegregation of the jury pools, if you. Mm-hmm. Um, can limit the number of black people to two, and then you have these uh, 10 to two verdicts, then then you can uh, kind of proceed with business as usual um, and, and uh, continue convicting black defendants.
2: Yeah, and actually it, it was originally three, if I remember correctly. Um, it was a nine, nine to three in the 1898 constitution. It was changed to 10 to two when the constitution was rewritten again. The state constitution was rewritten again in the 70s. Um, and this came around the same time, uh, maybe just after the Supreme Court uh, came down with a ruling finding that non-unanimous juries in the federal consti- in the federal uh, criminal system would be considered unconstitutional, but allowing for non-unanimous juries in state courts. Um, so that allowed Louisiana to maintain its uh, its 10 to 2 jury, uh, as well as one other state, Oregon.
0: So there was only such a thing as a hung jury when the split was greater than first- 10 to two. Nine to three and then 10 to two? Yeah. Okay.
3: And we just had a big case yesterday, right? That is going to get a new trial. Cardell Hayes was convicted on a split jury. He convicted of killing Will Smith, the former Saints player, Um, and so that's going back now. That was in the news yesterday too.
2: Yeah, just yeah like, that, was, that was a big case from a few years back that ended up with a 10 to 2 verdict. Mm. Yeah, so that, that's a case that's
4: still on direct appeal. So this, the original Supreme Court decision did apply to, to that case, which is why it's um, he's going to get a new trial. Right.
0: But I want to understand now that, that the Supreme Court's going to hear yet another version of this regarding retroactive cases.
2: Yeah, the next, the next step is that the Supreme Court is going to be hearing a case about whether to apply total re- retroactivity to this, meaning would it would ex- extend to anyone who's, who's, you know, obviously still alive, um, whose case is no longer on direct appeal, it's considered closed. Right now, the decision from the court that came down in April only applies to those cases that are still in the appeals process. This next case would apply, is seeking to apply it beyond that to any case convicted on a 10 to 2 or 11 to 1 verdict. Another thing I'll
4: I'll just mention is that uh, there are about 300 of these, you know, 1,500 cases that have come out of New Orleans, um, and both candidates for district attorney um, in New Orleans in the December 5th runoff, Kiva Landrum and Jason Williams, have said that they're going to review those 300 cases regardless of what the Supreme Court finds uh, with regards to retroactivity. I believe what they have said is that they're going to either determine whether or not a case should be uh, vacated or dismissed altogether uh, due to lack of evidence. I mean, what what advocates argue and what you can kind of imagine is that a lot of these 10 to 2 decisions, the evidence is generally maybe not as strong as a a unanimous conviction. There's two people who, who were failed to be convinced by it the evidence that so they're going to go back and look at these cases um, and determine how to proceed, but have sort of indicated that regardless of what the U.S. Supreme Court decides, they consider uh,
2: the Ramos decision to be retroactive in York. It sounds like quite a big job. I'll be very interested to hear how they intend to accomplish that.
0: Especially given the the other discussions that we frequently have about the budget and if there's a massive Cut that everybody's facing, and there's hundreds potentially of cases that perhaps need to be retried after this. Yeah,
2: I mean the D- the DA is facing a 20 percent cut this year, um, just just like almost everybody else. Um, it, at least from the city end of the budget, reviewing 300 cases to begin with is a big job.
0: Right, reviewing
2: it when you're facing a budget cut like this is an even bigger job. So I'm again, I think. Uh, Everybody who's been following this is interested in hearing how they intend
3: Do you guys have any idea how far back we're talking for some of these cases?
2: I believe the the
4: oldest one, and I could be wrong, is the is late 60s. I know oh. there are definitely cases in the 70s as well. Um, So, yeah, de- decades-old cases. Um, and you can imagine the the difficulty in potentially retrying some of those cases in terms of witnesses and evidence. I mean... So we'll see how that plays out logistically, if,
2: if uh, it comes down
4: to it.
0: Okay. All right. Well, have a happy Thanksgiving, y'all.
2: Yeah, you too. Right. Yes. Thank you very much. Bye.
0: This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first profit public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Michael Isaac Stein, Marta Jusen, Nick Krastel, and Lens editor, Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. Happy Thanksgiving.